open them with me to the Gospel of Mark? The Gospel of Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. If you know what the New Testament is, the New Testament begins with Matthew. Mark is the second book. We're going to be looking in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And before we do so, allow me just a couple extra minutes of introduction this morning, more than I would typically do, because we're, we're in a different book, and I want to draw our attention to a couple things. Our passage warrants it this morning. When you look at Mark's neighbors in the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, and when you hear their, the beginning accounts that they tell, Mark and Luke begin with these uh, pretty intricately uh, detailed genealogies, um, the family tree of Jesus Christ. And then they go into these rich narratives, these, these stories of Jesus' birth, his incarnation. We spent a lot of time in the passage on Matthew these last couple weeks. The, the, how the culture responds to Jesus, how other people respond, all these great details about Jesus' birth. That's Matthew and Luke. Mark does something entirely different. Mark kind of skips the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Here's how Mark begins. Mark begins with John the Baptist. And then it begins with Jesus' baptism. And then it begins with Jesus' public ministry. And what he says, what Jesus says on the front, is, on the front end is very important for us this morning. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. And I'm the king of that kingdom. And what follows in Mark is jab after jab after theological jab of illustrations and example of Jesus embodying and showing the fruit of this kingdom here on earth. We see all these supernatural events. There's, there's people getting healed. Blind are getting sight. Demons are being cast out. Paralytics are being healed. It's just jab after jab after jab. This kingdom is here, and Jesus is the one starting it. Jesus is the one doing it. Why is that important for us this morning? Well, there are some during this time that would say, when Mark is writing this gospel, when they're looking at Jesus, when they're looking at the disciples, and they're looking at this Christianity, they're going... You know, the Romans, other people who are hearing about this for the first time, they're going, really, this Christianity thing, this kingdom of God, this is really nothing new. Because at this time, there's, there's, a, there's a major religion called Judaism. You may remember Paul, who's the writer of the New Testament, formerly Saul. He was a Judaizer. And this religion is, 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 is taking over at, at this time. And we'll explain a little bit more about what it looks like later. And what the Romans and what other people are saying about this, about this Christianity, that Jesus and his, and his disciples, this kingdom that has come and these things that are being made new, is like, you know, really all that is, is it's just a branch. It's just this small sect of Judaism. Nothing new. It's just, you know, just a, a, a small offshoot of Judaism. There's nothing new going on here. Mark says that could not be further from the truth. And jab after jab after theological jab, he's trying to instill in our minds that the kingdom of God is not Judaism. On the surface, they're going to look a lot the same. They're, they're rich in scripture. They're rich in biblical history. They both give head nods to, to Abraham. But he says, look, when we get down to the core, when we get down to the very center, these two things couldn't be more opposite. Christianity is not Judaism. Judaism up here is saying, we're the kingdom of God. Jesus and the disciples over here saying, no, 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 we're the kingdom of God. And so we're asking the question this morning, will the real kingdom of God please stand up? Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Let's read this together. This is God breathed. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he, Jesus, was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. 
And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose, immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. O oh, Spirit, we have wandered into your territory once again. And we place ourselves underneath your word. For how will we see unless you give us eyes? And how will we hear unless you give us ears? And how will we embrace this unless you change our doubting and our skeptic hearts into hearts of flesh? Oh, Spirit, would you work now? Speak to us. Take these words, sabotage our prayers, sabotage this passage, use them for your ends, your purposes, and ultimately for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple years ago, many years ago actually, I took a family trip uh, over the Thanksgiving holidays to our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And while we were there, we decided to do like a tour of the national monuments. We hit all the biggies. Perhaps my favorite stop along the way was J. Edgar Hoover's um, FBI Museum. If you've ever been there, it's incredibly fascinating. And I'll never forget one of the exhibits. I remember it to this day. It was basically this, this timeline of the history of, of America and, and the FBI and how they categorized, classified, and identified criminals. You see, we're in the 21st century. We watch CSI. You know, if you sneeze over here and they get a flake of dandruff over there, they can link you to the crime scene. You're guilty. It's watertight. Well, before CSI days, there was fingerprinting, right? They would, they would identify criminals by fingerprints. Well, criminals got smart. You know, they wore gloves. Well, before fingerprinting, before test tubes and chemicals, uh, there was this method called the Bertillon method. And here's how the Bertillon method worked. Let's say you were convicted of a crime and you're being processed and you're about to go to prison or you're about to go to jail. What they would do to process you is they would start taking measurements of your face. You know, how far apart are your eyes? How, how big are your ears? How far is your nose from your lip? All these measurements, all these numbers would go on a piece of paper. And that kind of became your identity, who you were for this end and for this purpose. Let's say you were released from jail. And let's say you were to commit another crime and you were to come in and be processed again. They would perform this same system upon you, this Bertillon method. They would take the measurements of your face and they would say, okay, well, what's your name? And they would say, well, and they would use an alias. I'm, I'm so-and-so. Well, after they would take the measurements of your face, they would go back to the database and say, oh, no, 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 no. This is actually not your first offense. This is your second offense. You say you're John Smith, you're actually Joe Smith. We know who you are. It was the way they classified individuals. Well, when I was looking at this exhibit, 
This exhibit told uh, of the moment in time when the Bertillon method failed, when it became obsolete. And it's a story about two men. And you can actually look this up online. It's incredibly fascinating. The two men's names were William West and Will West. They sound almost exactly the same. William West and Will West. And when you look at their mugshots, it's online. You can look at this online. When you look at their mugshots, they look like identical twins. And here's how the story goes. In the early 1900s, William West committed murder. And he's being processed. And they took his measurements. And he went to Leavenworth Prison for life. About two years later, Will West, an entirely different person, committed armed robbery. And when they brought him in to be processed at Leavenworth Prison, they performed this Bertillon method on him. And they took the measurements of his face, and then when we went back to the database, they said, we actually have a record of you. And not only do we have a record of you, you're actually already in prison. Uh, And they had this moment of panic of going, did the prisoner escape? Did we just catch him momentarily after he escaped? I mean, it was just sheer pandemonium. Finally, after hours of, 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 of craziness, they get the two men in the room together, William West and Will West. And the room was deadpan silent. Why? Because they looked exactly alike. Their measurements were exactly the same. You know how they told them apart? They took their thumbprints. Their thumbprints were different. And that was the birth of fingerprinting. In our passage this morning, what the Lord is going to do through this author, Mark, is he's going to put two things side by side. In one sense, we have this, this, this modern religion at this time, this Judaism of which Paul was a part of. We read about it in this passage, describes, describes. They're these people that, um, they're kind of like the blue-collar Judaizers, and they're not at the top of the food chain. That's, um, that's the, uh, uh, the rabbis. That's the Pharisees. The, the scribes are, are more blue-collar. They're in charge of actually copying um, um, all the old ancient texts, and they're in charge of the children. And they're in this passage. We'll read about them here in, in just a moment. Mark is, and Jesus are saying, there's this group of, of Judaizers here. And on the other hand, we have this kingdom of God. We have Jesus and his disciples. And, and on the surface, if you use the Bertillon method, they're very, very similar. They look a lot alike. But what Mark is going to do for us in this passage this morning, he's, he's going to run the fingerprints. He's going to say, but when you look at the core, when you look at the heart of this, you're going to find that these two ideas, these two religions, couldn't be more different, couldn't be more opposite. And Mark's going to give us three markers this morning. And those are going to be our three points this morning. And, and the first two actually relate to Jesus, and the last relates to the kingdom itself. So if you're taking notes, here are the three points this morning. First, the first point, the first mark or feature of the kingdom is that Jesus is the axis, A-X-I-S. Jesus is the axis. Second point, he's the agent. And lastly, how do you access this kingdom? It's accessed through faith. They're all A's. I did not do that on purpose, but it's for your entertainment and note-taking pleasure. Jesus is the axis, he's the agent, and it's accessed through faith. Okay, so first, this question of of access, what does does this kingdom revolve around? When you compare Christianity to Judaism, what is at the center of each? And what Mark does, and let me show you my cards first. Here's where we're going this morning. And all of these points are going to build on top of each other. At the core of Judaism... When you peel back all the traditions, when you peel back all the layers, when you get to the heart of it, who does it seek to glorify? Who does it seek to raise up? What does this this universe spin around? It's an individual. It's you. It's man. And what Mark says is that this Christianity, this thing that Jesus is inaugurating, this thing that he is starting, man is not the center of it. Not a, a group of people aren't the center of it. An idea is not the center of it. There is a person at the center of it, and it is Jesus 
Christ. This is what makes us different. This is what makes us distinct. We are not Judaism. We all know the name Galileo, right? Back in the 17th century, there was this idea going around, and everybody bought in that at the center of our galaxy was the Earth, right? The moon, the other planets, the sun actually revolved around the Earth, and the Earth was stationary. Well, Galileo comes along with the invention of the telescope, and he does his homework and does, and does the science thing. And what he finds out is, is that actually we've been wrong this whole time. The Earth is not stationary. Actually, it's the sun that's stationary. The sun stays put. The Earth, the moon, the planets, they all revolve around it. We, we, we've gotten it wrong. And here what we have in this passage this morning is Mark is doing the same thing as Galileo. He's saying, look, Judaism, what it puts at the center of the universe is man. Everything revolves around him, even God. But what's different about this kingdom of God that Jesus is beginning is that Jesus Christ himself is at the axis. He is the center of it. When you peel back all the layers, what's at its core? A person, and that is Jesus Christ. Where do we see that actually playing out in this passage? Look with me uh, again at our text. And, and before we actually look at these passages, consider this. You can tell a lot about a person you can tell a lot about where they have placed the axis in their life. Is the axis on them or is it on Jesus Christ? You can tell a lot about, about a person when they experience two situations in their life, pain and success. When people are going through pain and when people experience success, you can tell a lot about a person and what they center their life around. And, and notice the people from Capernaum in this passage experience both. They experience pain in this passage and they experience Success First, pain, where do they experience that? There's a member in their community uh, that is paralyzed. This is not a young man. Uh, this is not a, a newly paralyzed individual. He's, he's been paralyzed since birth. And they've had to watch the effects of this fall and the broken world in this man's life. And then let me remind you that at this point in, in, in redemptive history, you know, Jesus didn't have uh, the advantages we have. He couldn't send a tweet to Capernaum and just say, hey, by the way, going to be in, in C-Town in a couple days. You know, you got the sniffles or that blood issue again. Come on by. We'll get that taken care of you. Ricky Tick, hashtag Peter's mom's house, right? <laughs> he didn't have that opportunity. Word gets out. Jesus is home. And in an agricultural community, they stop what they're doing. They stop work. And as a, as a group of people, they take this paralytic to Jesus. And so the question for us this morning is, what does their role revolve around? Do they have a solar theology? Because they're experiencing the pain and the brokenness of this world. There are things in this man's life that ought not be. And where do they go? Where do they flee? They stop what they're doing and they flee to a person. Jesus Christ. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they handle pain and the way they experience pain and trouble. You can also tell a lot about a person where their axis is when they experience success. What happens to this paralytic? We know the end of the story, right? He's, he's let down through the roof. And the assumption is this man has paralyzed Jesus and you can do something about it. And Jesus does. He heals him. And what does Capernaum do? Hey, Capernaumites, see y'all huddle up here. Man, that was pretty awesome, wasn't it? We should make a t-shirt. And you four, you guys that carried the, uh, uh, that carried the mat, y'all get extra props. Y'all get the assist this week. I mean, that was awesome. I mean, Capernaum, we're number one. Now, what do they do? Verse 12, they worshiped and they glorified God. 
Again, where is their axis? Where is this kingdom of God being recentered to? Is it around a person? Jesus Christ. Friends, this is where Judaism falls short. Again, underneath all the traditions, underneath all of this, this rich biblical language, at the core of Judaism is not Jesus Christ. The core of Judaism is, is your own self. And, and we need a Judaizer to speak into this. Um, and thankfully one does. Remember Paul, who was once Saul. He writes a letter, and I'm not going to have you turn here. I'm going to read it for you. He writes a letter to the Philippians church, and he's saying, I'm no longer a Judaizer. I'm done with that. I follow Jesus Christ. He is my axis. And he's writing to Philippi saying, let me describe to you my old life, my old life in Judaism. Here's how it looked. And this is Paul's words. Philippians 3. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for more confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Listen to this. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Jesus and those Christians, I didn't just oppose them, I persecuted them. I helped kill them. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But get this. Paul says something has changed. But whatever gain I had, I now count as a loss for the sake of what? My new axis, Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. You remember what Jesus says later in his ministry? If anyone would follow me and come after me, what must he first do? He must first deny himself. The kingdom of Judaism says you're at the center. The world revolves around you, even God. But the kingdom of God at the center is Jesus. And we revolve around him. It's this solar theology. The question for us this morning then before we move on is, is, well, how do we know where our axis is? Because here's the point. Judaism is not just a thing of our past. And friends, hear this. Judaism is not just some ancient religion that we can kind of look back on and go, hmm, wasn't that unfortunate? Okay, moving on. Judaism is alive. And it's doing really, really well today. We have a 21st century Presbyterian Southern Judaism that is doing very well right now. It's thriving. How do we know if, if in, in our heart of hearts and when we dig deep past the layers, if, if, if we're just modern day Judaizers or if really our axis is centered on Christ? We could probably ask a hundred questions here. I'll just ask a few. Consider this. Sometimes it's hard to know yourself. If you have a good friend or a spouse, um, why don't you ask them? They know. Sometimes it's hard to make an opinion of yourself because you're, you're biased, but your friends know. Your spouses know. Why don't you ask them this question based on, on the way I act, the way I behave. Where do you think my axis is? Is it on myself? Does the world revolve around me? Or does my world revolve around Jesus? Is he my axis? Have them read your tweets, your Facebook, Facebook posts for this last year. Have them make an opinion based on that. For those slightly less daring, ask yourself this question. Why do I want to get married? Why am I getting married? Why am I staying married? 
If the answer to any of these questions revolves around you in any shape or form, you might be a modern-day Judaizer. And what Mark says is, if you miss Jesus Christ, if he is not the axis of your life, you might miss this kingdom altogether. That's the first point. This, this kingdom revolves around Jesus, not around us. And that's the difference between the kingdom and Judaism. second point is, is this. Who is the agent? Who does the work in this kingdom? Who's going to bring it to fruition? Who's, whose back, whose arms, whose legs are actually going to bring this thing into fruition? The passage tells us, again, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the change agent in all of us. I have this show on TV that I love to watch. I wouldn't call it my favorite, but anytime it's on, I, I can't change it. I get locked in. And I forget what channel it's on, but it's, it's a show called Overhauling. Not Overhauling, Overhauling Apostrophe. And here's the concept. An individual has this classic car. It's probably 50, 60 years old. And, and tied to it is some sort of sentimentality. Perhaps you know, it was the grandfather's car. It's been passed down from generation to generation. Point being, this, this car is special, not just because it's a classic, but there's meaning to it. And a friend of this individual, uh, along with this, this crew um, that, that work for overhauling, and the police will actually stage this prank and steal the car. And while this car is quote-unquote stolen, and while this individual is bemoaning the loss of this, this sentimental um, item, this, this object, this, this team of mechanics is, is entirely overhauling this car. They strip it down. They sand it. They get the rust off. Uh, they restore it back to its original glory. And, and here's the point. This person is not going to get a new car. This person isn't going to get something with 2013 at the front of it. The, the, the purpose of this is to give them their old car back, but fully restored, new paint job, new interior, the way it should have been, and the way it was probably 50 or 60 years ago. And without fail, here's how the show always ends. The individual walks in. He's been blindfolded, and the veil has been lifted. The joke's on him, and he gets to see, he or she gets to see the car for the first time. Without fail, they always break down in tears. And you see this grown man walking up to these mechanics who have grease and haven't slept for six days, and he is just boohooing, crying on the shoulder of these mechanics. Thank you. I couldn't have done that myself. I didn't have the time. I didn't have the energy. I didn't have the capital. If you hadn't done this, this never would have happened. They get a brand new car out of it, but it's still the old car. What Mark and Jesus are saying in this passage, much like this individual on this show, is that things are being made new. Things are being restored. Things are going back to their original purpose and plan. But you need to know who's doing it. Judaism says it's you, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. But what the kingdom says, this new kingdom of God that Jesus is establishing, is that I'm doing this. And notice what Jesus does in this passage. Notice how comprehensive this overhauling is. It starts with the soul, and then it goes to the body, and then it goes to the mind. This restoration, this overhauling is, is completely comprehensive, if that's not redundant. Notice in, in verse 5, and notice the chronology of this too. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You see what's going on here? The assumption, again, is that as the paralytic is being let down through the roof. Um, he, he just needs to be healed. We, you know, that's, that's kind of you to address the whole soul and spiritual side of things here, but he really came to be healed. And Jesus trumps him. 
again, because we have this group of Judaizers, these, these scribes are here, and, and Jesus does something very intentional. He says, son, you're not just healed, but your sins are forgiven. I'm going to do something only God can do, only the Son of Man can do. Your sins are forgiven. Your soul is healed. And there's actually a bigger problem here. You have spiritual paralysis, and that needs to be fixed too. Your faith has healed you. Not only does he fix the soul of this individual, but he does fix the body. Verse 11, he says, get up, walk, go home. He's physically healed. But notice what else Jesus does in this passage. Jesus doesn't just stop with, with, with the body and with the soul. He, he wants to overhaul our minds, our preconceived notions. Our minds are fallible too. Our minds are broken. Our minds are paralyzed. And Jesus then turns to the, scri- the scribes and says this, verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know. Again, cognitive. He's attacking their mind, their presuppositions. that You need to know this. This is broken within you. This needs to be restored. That the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. That's a reference to Daniel 7. I wish I had an opportunity to kind of go back and explain that. But Jesus is using their language, the Old Testament language, saying, Daniel 7 is now here in your presence. This kingdom has begun. And friends, this is where Judaism falls short. Whereas this new kingdom says Jesus is the agent for change, Judaism says, no, Jesus is not the agent for change. You, you're the axis. You can change yourself. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Let me give you one example. John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking. They come to a man who is blind. And Jesus does something very odd. He takes dirt and he takes saliva and he mixes it together and makes mud. And he takes this money, he puts it over the man's eyes. And he says, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. And what happens? The man's sight is restored. He sees again. Do you remember the question the disciples asked Jesus? They said, Jesus, which person sinned? This man or his parents? You hear the question behind the question? That's a Judaistic question. That is Judaism at its core. Who sinned? Did he do it or did his parents? In Judaism, there's this direct relationship between the physical pain you experience this earth and unconfessed sin in your life. In other words, if you're experiencing pain, it's because there is something you need to confess in your life. And if you're not experiencing relief from this pain, you're either not confessing enough, you're not confessing the right thing, go back and have three more quiet times and call me in in the morning. Who is the agent for change in Judaism? Is it Jesus? No. It's you. You are the agent. You can fix yourself. You see how subtle it is? But it's all bathed in biblical language. It's all bathed in biblical history. But it's man-centered. And it's not God-centered. There's many more examples. Job's friends. Many more. But friends, isn't Judaism alive today? Isn't that our, our knee-jerk reaction when, when, when bad things happen to us or we experience the pain and the brokenness of the world? What did I do? Was it because I sped to the office this morning? Most likely. God's just going to tit for tat. That's the, that's the Judaizer's economy. And God's saying that's not how it works. Jesus is the agent for change. Okay, so what does this mean? What does this mean for us if, if, if Jesus is our axis and he is our agent for change. How has that actually played out in life? And for, for some of us this morning, this should be a, a breath of relief. 
we should hear a, a sigh coming from the room because some of you right now are experiencing things with family or experiencing things with friends that are devastating. And you're about the only person they're trusting in. And you're heartbroken to the point of emotion. And you want to do something, but you have no idea what to do. You know what this passage is telling us this morning? You don't have to do anything. That's not your job description as a follower of Christ. So breathe easy. It's not your job to fix your friends. It's not your job to fix your family. It's not your job to overhaul people. That's Jesus' job. So everybody take a breath of relief. That is not your job. Now that the pressure's off, what is your job? What is it? You have the blessed privilege of knowing the one who does restore. The one who does overhaul. Not partially, but completely. So with the pressure off now, you can say, I know a guy. Let's pray together. Let's go to him. Let's ask. You remember what Jesus says in his ministry? You do not have because you do not what? Because you do not ask. And why don't we ask? I'm a guy. I'm, I'm terrible at this. When a problem pops up, my first, my knee-jerk reaction is not to pray. It's what am I going to do to fix this problem? Whether it be emotional, whether it be spiritual, whether it be practical, that's my knee-jerk reaction is not to pray. Is not to go to God. Is not to ask the one who can overhaul and redeem all things to help and to fix things and to approach in faith. No, it's, it's what am I going to do? And then after I get frustrated, it's like, okay, I know what I need to do. Friends, we know the one who overhauls. And we know the one who overhauls completely. And like these people from Capernaum, we ought to flee to him. Well, last but not least, what's, what's the door to this kingdom? How do we get in? How is this, this kingdom, this kingdom of God, that Jesus is the center of, and that he is the agent for change of, how, how do we get in? Again, this is where Judaism falls short. Judaism would say, how do you get in? It's by your works. Paul said that in Philippians. Do more, do more, do more. And rather than some you know, elaborate definition of what real faith is, um, some theologically astute definition, um, Jesus is just going to give us an example in this passage of what real faith looks like embodied. So let's look to the example of these people from Capernaum as to what real faith looks like, because that's what, that's what saves this man. That's what saves this congregation, this community. And Jesus says it in verse 5. Look with me again. And when Jesus saw their faith, notice the, in the plural here. He doesn't look at the faith of the paralytic. He doesn't see his faith. The referent here is not the four men holding the pad. The referent here is, is the people from Capernaum. When he saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. So what does real faith look like? I want, I want to draw your attention to three things this morning. Faith is communal. It takes effort. And we should expect obstacles. First, this idea of faith being communal. Let me just ask a very simple and very obvious question. How far, when this paralytic heard that Jesus uh, was near, how far would he have gotten by himself as a paralytic? He would have missed out entirely. He never would have seen Jesus except for what? Except for his community. Except for his group of people saying, you can't get there by yourself. And don't we feel that way sometimes when we're experiencing the pain and the brokenness of this world, we can kind of get one-sided. And we can get so locked into our, our environment and, and the pain of it. We forget that we have one that overhauls. And that's where we need a community to come along and say, come on, 
we need to go to Jesus together. He couldn't have been healed without them. And what we hear going on here is is the invisible popping of the Judaizers' bubble here. Because Judaism is, is by nature very, very independent. And what Jesus is saying is saying this is the death of autonomy. This is the death of independence. When you get an email about a need in the church, that is your business. When somebody in your community group opens up and says, this is how I'm experiencing the fall, that is your business. They need you. And to you, you know, Mr. Island, Mr. Autonomous, you need a community, you need a congregation too to come alongside you. You need their faith to encourage you as well. This is the death of autonomy. This is the death of self-will. What this is doing is it's pointing out these invisible bonds that exist between you and me because we are in Christ and he is our axis together. At times I need your faith to encourage me and at times my faith will encourage you. We do this together No more I, you. It's now we. It's now us. Faith is communal. Second, it takes effort. Faith takes effort. It involves blood, sweat, tears. And and I want to draw your attention to the four men who are actually carrying this man. Okay, it's their arms and their shoulders that carry him from his home to Jesus. It is their legs that carry him up the steps to the roof. It is their hands, their fingernails that dig through the mud and clay to open up the roof. It is their back that lowers this mat before Jesus. Point being, some of you are going to do more work than others. It's going to take effort. It's not going to be easy. Faith requires the exertion of effort. And to kind of dovetail with that point, we should expect obstacles. What happens when these four men approached this house? They couldn't get in, but why? Because of the crowd. And they kind of go Navy SEAL on us. Their their motto is improvise, adapt, overcome. They just go, man, isn't that a bummer? Let's head back to the house. No, what do they say? No, no, no. This guy can do it. We know this guy can do it. We just got to get in front of him. And so what do they do? They go up the stairs and they claw through a roof. And they lower him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus says what? I've seen your faith. You've been persistent. Faith is persistent despite obstacles. It's not easy. I've seen your faith and I'm going to reward it. Your sins are forgiven. Friends, faith may look like putting a hole in your roof. It may look as awkward and as destructive as putting a hole in your very own roof. Expect obstacles. In light of this, we ought to be persistent with the Lord. If we ask once and we don't get what we want, how much faith do we really have? We just kind of move on and and kind of fold our spiritual arms and hmm, at the Lord. No, faith is persistent. Jesus tells a parable about this. He tells about this widow who is asking this judge for justice. She says, give me justice. Give me justice. And this judge says, I fear neither God nor man, but I'm going to give you justice because you're bothering me. You are wearing me out. Bless your heart, here is justice. But please know this, I care not about God nor man. I'm just doing this so you'll get off my back. Here is justice, go, let it be done. And she's rewarded because she's persistent. And what does Jesus say at the end of that parable? He says this. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith like that on earth? Because how much more would the Father give you how much more will a caring and loving father give his child than this, than this judge exercising judgment? The Lord loves you more than that. 
He will give you what you ask for. But when he comes, will he find faith? Friends, we embrace, we walk through the front doors of this kingdom, through the doors of faith. I need to close with this illustration. I don't know where it started. I don't know who created it. Um, Point is, it wasn't me. But it's been in the back of my head for a couple weeks now, and and it's very helpful as we kind of compare this this idea of Judaism to this kingdom of God. What does faith look like? And here's how the parable, here's how the illustration goes. There's an airplane and it is going down. Its doom is imminent. It is out of fuel and it's about to crash and burn. And on the plane, there are plenty of parachutes for everybody. There are two groups of people. And there's one group of people who can describe for you in great detail the capacity, the size, the texture, the feel, the dimensions of the parachutes. There are people who can explain to you in greater detail than I could um, the state of the plane, where it's going, what's going to happen when it crashes. And then there's another group of people. They've jumped. They know that the parachute can hold them. They're not giving any second thought. They are out of the plane. And friends, when we compare Judaism, this, this, this ancient uh, religion and its, its modern form, and we compare it to the kingdom of God, it's easy to know a lot about faith. Some of you can probably describe it better than me or, or the session. You can describe it really well. But you haven't jumped yet. You haven't felt that exhilaration of your stomach going up into your chest and resting solely, as Paul said here in this passage, on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Not on my works, not on my ability to be an agent, not on the world spinning around me, but on Jesus. You don't know how that feels, but you're still in the plane. And this... This isn't for DPC folks this morning exclusively or, or visitors, you know, those in Christ, those not. This is just for anyone who hasn't here, let them hear. There are some of us in here this morning that know parachutes in the plane very, very well, but you haven't jumped. It's time to jump. It's time to embrace Jesus. It's time to flee to Jesus. Repent of your righteousness. Repent of your good works. And embrace Christ on your behalf. Do you know about faith? Or are you faithing? Let's jump together. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this, um, this word. And Spirit, we would ask that you would unsettle us. This plague will always bother us. We will always seek to take the axis off of Jesus and put it back on ourselves. To build a world and a kingdom around us. Lord, we would even have you serve us. We would have you be our medallion, our magic lamp. And so, Spirit, we would ask you this morning again, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, that we are our own worst enemies. Make the mercy of God so clear to us that we are inexcusable to pass it over. Grant us faith. And then grant us more faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.